Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, I'm going to start the show like I always do, which is with a plea for you to leave us some reviews on Apple Podcasts to help more people find us. Um, And as I always say, but I think is always true, we have a wonderful show planned for you today. Um, In one of our later segments, we're going to be talking about appealing and negotiating for more aid. I don't really know who doesn't want to hear more about that. Um, Certainly was something I was very focused on when I was working on this with my own son. Uh, So we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later in the show. But first, testing. So much, as usual, going on in the world of testing. And joining me as our uh, somewhat resident test test expert is Megan Steubendeck. She's CEO of Arbor Bridge, which is one of our partner test prep organizations. And the one that I entrusted to work with my own son, the aforementioned child who went through the process recently. Hi, Megan. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, So obviously lots going on in the world of standardized testing. Um, And of course, big news and something we talk about a lot on the show, or I feel like we talk about it a lot on the show. My listeners might disagree, but um, we've kind of covered in detail the status of test optional and admissions right now. One big piece of news that just recently came out is that Columbia um, has announced that they are going to be permanently test optional. That is the most selective school out there that I know of that has committed to this for good, um, it seems. And um, I'll be interested to see who follows suit. My guess is quite a few um, of their peer institutions uh, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into today. Um, but let me ask you this, um, as from, from your perspective um, as a test expert and someone who runs a test prep company, tell me about tests and, you know, are they back to normal yet? Where are we at as far as APs, IBs, SATs, SATs, ACTs, sorry, got myself stuck (laughs) on all of the acronyms there. Yes, there's quite an alphabet soup of of tests out there. And you're exactly right, Beth. Things have been changing quite a lot. And one of the big stories was test optional, but another big one was the disruptions caused by the pandemic. Uh, There was periods when the SAT and ACT were just outright canceled. APs went online. IBs were canceled. There was, uh, you know, they would come back and then seats would get pulled. And students were really having a hard time finding an opportunity to take the test. Um, But really, now we are back to a state of pretty much normal when it comes to all of these tests. So SAT and ACT are uh, back to sort of normal seat availability. Uh, cancellations are back to the normal spread where generally the only time we see cancellations are because of uh, weather or, or other things that have always happened in, in the history right. of, of this kind of testing. But we're not seeing that large scale cancellation or site cancellations that we've had in the past. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is that the tests have gone back to the old paper and pencil and the AP is a good example of this. Um, 
Um, so AP is on track to go this, uh, it's hard to believe it, but we are only I know. Like six weeks away here from the AP season again. And then we're off to another, another race, but um, AP season is coming up at the beginning of May. And that's a big one for a lot of students. And those did have to go online and scramble um, while the pandemic was happening um, in the lockdown period. But now we are back to kids take them at school. Um, there are a couple of AP exams that are available digitally. There's seven of them. Um, mostly just the most popular ones are a few of the histories and a few of the English ones. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really up to the school to decide whether or not a student will take it digitally. Um, but most kids are just back to taking it paper and pencil. And there we aren't seeing the cancellations we saw. But, you know, one thing I have seen is we have seen a drop in the number of people taking the SAT and ACT in particular. I think that's goes along with the test optional. And I, I'm sure that you've seen this too with your students is there is a number of students who've just decided it's not the path for me anymore. And so they're choosing because they now have that ability. Um, they're not, they're just choosing not to take to the test. Now, we look at the numbers, SAT and ACT are probably down in terms of test takers by about 20% each. Um, so it's not massive, but it is, it's a number. It's definitely a substantial number. Yeah, I mean, I think for sure what I'm seeing is that I have a group of students who are saying, I know this is going to be a positive for me. I'm pursuing taking the tests and they're taking them and they're right. They are positive for them. I've got another group of students who are saying, I'm going to try. I want to, you know, I think that my academic profile um, and extracurricular profile make me competitive for some of these schools. And I'm going to try and get my test scores where I think they will be a positive in my application. And then if they don't, then they're just opting not to send the scores. And then I've got that third group of students who are saying, just like what you said, not for me, for whatever reason. And, you know, I've had students who just in the past when they've taken standardized testing, it's never been an accurate reflection of their capabilities um, or it really places undue stress on them. They just freeze up in a way that they don't with other in other testing situations. And so they're opting to just say, nope, I'm not going to take tests at all. And I think for me, the big message I want to impart is that they're successful in their, um, in their uh, applications. You have to be thoughtful about where you're applying to. If you're going to be test optional, there are schools where the tests actually aren't optional, right? If you live in Florida and you want to go to one of your state institutions, guess what? You have to do testing. Same with Georgia. Um, I think Georgia's still there. Um, but, you know, and, and I actually, my advice for students applying to the bigger state schools in general, I do think testing is an important component, even if those schools are currently test optional. I don't really see that they're set up to do admissions in a way that is beneficial without those test scores. So I'm encouraging students who have their sights set on some of those bigger state schools to test. And even if the scores aren't necessarily in the tip top area, because um, that's something certainly we're seeing is the skewing of the scores being submitted being very high. Mm -hmm. I think it's more beneficial to submit those scores than not to submit those scores. And of course, everything, as my listeners know, depends and it's an individual thing for every student and, and an individual conversation for every student. But um, I think what you're seeing certainly mirrors uh, what we are seeing here. Um, I was curious to get your thoughts on whether, you know, we just talked about scores skewing high. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing students scoring a lot more students doing really well? Are you seeing a lot more students doing poorly due to pandemic learning loss? What's your sense of how this is all of this is impacting scores themselves? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think one of the first things that um, is to kind of take a macro view and the studies that have been done, ACT actually came out with a study recently and showed um, that overall, in terms of test takers, scores are actually dropping. The average score hit a 30-year low with the class of 2022. So last year, seniors had the lowest score in 30 years, which is quite a lot, especially when you think about or consider that many kids are already opting out who know they're not going to score yes. well on this exam. So that's a real, that's a telling number. And a bit, essentially what happened is leading up to the pandemic for about five years, we were, the average score nationwide was around a 21 and it dropped to a 19.8 last year. So that is something that all of us in education are clueless into and realizing there might be some things here we need to deal with. Now, ECT, and we agree with this, is it's not just the pandemic. There's all sorts of systemic things that kind of led to that moment, but mm -hmm. the pandemic helped to accelerate it. And so we're seeing as a whole that that is a trend. Now, what I'm seeing in sort of with the students we're working with and, and, and on a case-by-case -case basis is that it really does depend on a case-by-case -case basis. Right. Every student's experience in the pandemic was different. The skills they went into the pandemic were different than the skills of other students. And then the ones they came out with might have been very distinctly different in their experiences. And so we are seeing um, some fluctuation, but we're also seeing that things like test prep and sort of supports kids can get back um, pretty quickly the things that they're missed, at least that would affect SAT or ACT, particularly in things like the math, the science, and the English. Reading is a little bit harder to move, and it's always been the hardest, and it's the hardest one. Um, it continues to be because there was quite a lot of learning loss um, in reading um, over the years. But in general, we are those seeing when you're talking about those students with higher and higher scores. I think for us, what we're seeing is that's in terms of um, what the colleges are reporting in terms yes. of the students who report scores to them because... Yes. Students are, you know, hiding scores or not sending the scores if they aren't that good. So you can kind of get a different story depending on the, the lens you use to look at it. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's a good point. Um, one thing I do want to say to students and parents out there is that colleges are looking at what you send and not making assumptions about what you don't send. So while certainly, I guess you could say, oh, this student must not have done well. Well, for all the college knows, you didn't take them at all. They don't really have a lot of time to parse what you may or may not have done or may or may not have gotten. They're looking at what they have. Oh, you didn't submit scores. Okay, great. We're going to consider your application without the scores. Not, oh, okay, great. We're going to consider your application without the scores and we're going to give you a demerit because we think you probably didn't do well on them. That's not happening. Um, and conversely, if you're submitting your scores and they're great, then awesome. They're looking at your application and they're saying, okay, here's a student who does well on testing and this is another positive piece to the application. Um, Great, but you know, it's it's never been everything and it continues not to be everything. And if if anything, it's less than everything now because not everyone is submitting those scores. Um, and, and again, the colleges, the private colleges who have larger staffs and have always read more holistically are much better equipped to handle this than, in my opinion, than the larger state schools, which is why, you know, kind of I give that information. Um, I mean, are you seeing, so for the students that are coming in for doing test prep, you mentioned it's harder to move the needle on the reading and, and learning loss on the reading side, right? Because I think probably, unfortunately, I fall into this category. I read less because I'm on my phone more, which is so irritating on so many different levels. For me personally, I love to read. Um, and yet I get sucked into this scrolling thing. Um, what advice do you have for families who maybe the student is 
young or possibly a rising junior, you know, the gamut, any advice on how to get that, get them in a better place to do better on the verbal sections of the SAT or the ACT? Yeah, so I would say two two parts of it. I would say don't worry about the grammary part. Um, the grammar parts of both exams are really easy to learn the 30 rules, either through trust prep or through a book um, that you sit down with that is geared towards the exam. You can get those in a month or two, a couple of weeks, any student can do that. And honestly, those are the sections of the test, the English section of the ACT and the writing section of the SAT that are the fastest and easiest to move always. So generally I say when they're sort of young, don't worry too much about that. That can just be the last icing on the cake in the process. Sure. It really is that reading part, the reading skills of being able to sit with a text that's a little bit long, that's a little bit boring because let me yes. tell you, all of them are pretty boring, even for me, uh, but longer boring and have higher level uh, vocabulary than a student might find on, you know, Instagram or other places that they're yes, looking TikTok. at. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. <laughs> Instagram. That's a mom thing. <laughs> it's not for the kids anymore. Exactly. So. And, even, and even things like TikTok are primarily visual based. There's not really any right. text to it. And so even as we see um, students going further and deeper into new platforms on the internet, it's each platform, it feels like every generation gets less and less text and more and more visual, which is the exact opposite of the test they're going to see when it comes to SAT, ACT. So really kind of to get them back on that train, um, we recommend students, um, we actually have a list on our blog at arborbridge.com of the um, of a number of uh, pieces of reading, uh, sources for reading. So a great example would be um, long form essays um, uh, through things like the New York Times, the Washington Post, that sort of boring, dry reading that students hate to do. Um, right. Pick a topic that they do like and find uh, an article from those sources that um, is um, engaging for them to get started with. And then incrementally you make it something they're not really excited about. Um, other places would be uh, many of the novels and things that they read in school, making sure that they read those things. Uh, maybe choose another novel that's on a topic that they do like, um, really expanding their literature knowledge because there is, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, there's some changes coming to SAT and we're going to see more and more of that literature kind of feel. Um, and then other places um, that are uh, helpful are um, there are a series of academic journals that are free that students can read just a snippet from. They don't need to read an entire 40 page article, just a page, just yeah. a page, just to practice. That's enough because that's as long as the, uh, the passages will be. Um, and then at the same time, it's just doubling down on school reading do the reading that is assigned in school. I know so many students who skip it, kind of skim it, don't pretend they read it. That's not going to help. Do as much of that as they can. Right, right. Get that practice. And so let's say you're reading one of those 40-page academic journals <laughs> or scientific journals. What do you do with that page? How do you how do you test that you are reading it well and, you know, can, you know, are there are there things that students can apply while they're reading it that will be useful when it comes time to take one of these two tests? Yes, absolutely. One of the main things is to check your own understanding. Check yourself at each paragraph. Do I know what this paragraph is about? Um, if you can do that, you've A, process it, and B, are able to spit it back out. It means if there's a question about it, you'll be able to answer it. So that's a key a key reading strategy, not just for the test, like you said, but also for school, um, because those academic journals, they're going to show up when you get to college too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it is dry reading for sure. I mean, <laughs> 
I, uh, I look at some of these sample questions and reading passages, and I just think, ugh, like that's, it's tough going. Your mind wanders as you're reading it. So even if you're really good with reading comprehension, it, you re- it's helpful to train the brain a little bit with that. So we're going to talk about the new digital SAT after, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back to that. Any, before we do, before we go to break, any tips on how students could prep a little bit for the math sections um, or, you know, work that they can do earlier in their time in school. Um, you know, any any ideas that you have f- to get them going on that piece? Yeah, for students, I, I say that one of the main things is making sure that your Algebra 1 toolkit is strong. So that's that first year of Algebra. It shows up on almost every question of those exams. It doesn't matter if you're doing a geometry problem, if you're doing a a SOHCAHTOA problem, it's going to be something related to algebra. So making sure that that year is solid and strong is really, really key. And then preparing yourself for time to review concepts that you might've forgotten by the time the SAT or ACT come come into play. But that Algebra 1 toolkit is everything when it comes to the SAT and ACT. Oh, that is really good advice. And uh, quite <laughs> honestly, I mean, I've been doing this work for more than 20 years. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone quite so succinctly sum up. This is what you really need to know in order to do reasonably well. So thank you for that. I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, on that high note, we're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the new digital SAT. Um, Some of our listeners may be saying, what new digital SAT? I didn't know anything about this. So we're going to tell you all about it um, and uh, give you some suggestions and thoughts on that as well. So don't go away. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about standardized testing um, with our wonderful colleague, Megan Stubendeck, who's the CEO of Arbor Bridge, um, which is a wonderful test prep organization. And Megan, before the break, I promised people we would talk about the digital SAT. So why don't we start with something really basic? What is it? <laughs> yeah, so if you um, don't live and breathe the SAT like us people yes. in this world, which hopefully you don't have to, uh, we do that for you. Um, the SAT is changing and it's uh, they're in creating a new digital SAT. And the basic thing to know about the digital SAT is it's moving from a paper-based test to a computer-based test. That's the big change that is happening when we talk about the digital SAT. Okay, so what's going to change about... because I'm assuming, you know, anytime you go from paper to digital, it, it allows you to do some more unique things. Um, but what's staying the same since it's not a brand new test? Yeah. So one of the things to know is that when the test changed, uh, the SAT changed in 2015, it was largely a content change. So a lot of the content's actually not changing this time. What's really going to be changing is the student experience with a few content tweaks. So the thing that's staying the same, well, you still are going to take it at a test center or school. This is not an at-home test. That was one thing everyone was very excited. Was like, oh, a digital test. I can just take it, roll yeah. out of bed and open up my laptop and just take the SAT. No, that is not happening. Right. You do still have to go to the school or your testing center. Um, the other thing that's staying the same, it's still out of 1600. So the scoring is not going to change at all in that, uh, in that realm. It's still 800 for your combined verbal reading and writing and still 800 for math. Um, and the other thing that's really not changing at all is the math content. Math content is almost exactly the same. It's just on a computer screen now. So that's really what's going to be staying the same. Got it. Okay. So then before we get into kind of, well, I think that's really helpful. And um, I have now lived through a number of SAT changes in the course of my career, including, I love it, you know, the scoring that's changing, it's still 1600. And I almost started twitching from when it wasn't 1600, it was 2400. And everybody just, we struggled to wrap our brains around it, finally got used to it, and then boom, we're back to 1600 again. So I think that's a good thing. I'm glad that piece is not changing. And also, I'm glad that the content isn't really changing because that does um, feel harder to adjust to um, versus a new format for, and I'm, and I always do have to remind myself that the reality is for many students, this will be the first time they've taken the SAT. And so for them, it's no different than anything because it's the first time they're taking it. So, you know, for us, it's a lot of change. Yes, um, exactly. When is the change happening? That's always a big piece, right? Whenever you go through changes, um, the when it happens causes agita because some people will rush to get it taken before the changes and others will want to wait until after it changes. So when is all of this happening? Yeah, so actually for international students, it's happening this Saturday. So we are on the eve of a big unveiling. So uh, the international students, uh, and that is anyone outside of the United States or U.S. territories, will be taking this new digital SAT um, starting with the March exam in 2023. So that's this um, this Saturday um, as of when we are recording this. Uh, we're all going to be learning a lot in the next few days about how it went. We're yes. anxiously awaiting um, on our side. Um, so we will be posting things on our blog. We'll be you know chatting with everybody about what we find and what we hear from our students internationally. Um, so they're making the change this spring. Uh, for all 
all of the world, whether U.S. or uh, international, the PSAT is changing this October. So it's still in October, but it will change to the digital format in October. And then U.S. students for the SAT will have their first attempt, their first try at the digital exam um, as a whole next March, March of 2024. So we're about a year away from a full transition here in the U.S. Um, And one thing to know is that once your country goes digital, that's it. That's it. There's no more paper. Throw that paper out. Throw those pencils out. It is not coming back. So it will not. You will not have a choice between formats um, once your your country does uh, shift over. Got it. Got it. So unfortunately, to our international listeners, what I hear here is you're going to be the guinea pigs. Yes. Hopefully, it's going to go well. Um, and if anything doesn't go super well right now, it'll be March of 2024 for the U.S. But it's possible that it could get pushed out if things don't go well. But the plan is as you just laid it out, Megan. And then uh, it's this Saturday as of the day that you and I are talking, but for those people listening, it is as of Saturday, March 11th, 11th. Um, because this it will already have happened um, by the time you are hearing this segment. So it's exciting news. It's It makes me nervous when the College Board has made changes in the past. I want to say it's rarely gone well, but that's maybe a little bit harsh, but it does feel like they have struggled sometimes with big changes. So what's your sense? You know, are you nervous or, I mean, it'd be, I don't know. Let me just stop talking. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things here that give uh, me as I've also watched this, been in this industry for 15 years and watched the last iterations and the iterations before and the, what's going on now. And um, also saw the attempt, the college board was in charge of the digital APs during the pandemic as well. And so um, that was a, a sort of testing ground for them. And that didn't go so well that first year either. But I am seeing a lot of signs of promise this time. They've nice. definitely learned from their mistakes. So the first thing is, this didn't get delayed. The international testing is going to happen. Um, in the past, when they or the ACT have announced these sorts of things, they've ended up always having to delay yes. a rollout. They did not this time, which is mm. really, um, to me, a sign of confidence on their part. The second thing that um, I'm seeing is, um, as we talked about, they didn't do a whole lot of changes on the content. And we can talk about, there are some changes, though, in that experience, and we, sh- we should talk about those. But the um, the content isn't changing too dramatically. And so that has lowered a little of the load for them, I think, in terms of getting this out in time. Um, The third thing that I'm noticing that um, gives me a little bit of, of, not a little bit of hope, but a good amount of confidence um, is that they've done a ton of pilot testing. Um, Some of your listeners actually may have already taken the digital exam Mm. here in the United States. And the reason for that is that um, they've done a lot of pilot testing over the last year or two, um, first alongside colleges who've been watching and observing it. to get their buy-in to the scores as part of that. Um, But the other thing is that they've been offering just many students this year, take the paper-based test one week and next month you can take the digital version for free. And they've had a lot of kids try that and so that they can do a lot of um, ensuring that the test is fair and equal and it works in large scale. And I think the last thing that does give me hope is even though I did say that they kind of bungled that AP digital um, and that first year of the pandemic, um, remember they did have to build that in six weeks um, for millions of students to take tests over two sure. weeks, which was pretty hard. And they had to change the entire content of the exam. Um, but one thing they did the uh, did the AP digitally the next year, and it went really well. 
that technology is the backbone, along with the technology they built with Khan Academy to do SAT prep online. Those two things have been out for years and have actually been ironed out pretty well. And that is some of the backbone of the technology that they're building here. So there's a there's a number of things that make me think this this I they might actually be pretty successful at this. This list. could go well. All right. Uh, fingers crossed. We'll have to see. <laughs> we're going to we're going to go into this with optimism. I like it. That's what we're going to put out into the universe. <laughs> yes. um, so so let's get back to the to the test itself. Um, so how is it scored? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the scoring is the same as we mentioned before between a reading and writing score of 800, as it always has been, 800 for math. Um, and the College Board has done, like I said, a lot of pilot testing and does claim, and we don't have any reason not to believe them at this point, that a 1250 on the old test is the same as a 1250 on the digital test. So that they should be absolutely comparable. So you were talking about wrapping our minds in this industry and the right. admissions process between the 2400 and the 1600. We don't have to do that, and it should be an apples-to-apples comparison Great. moving forward. So that's that's really um, important, I think, for all of us and for students, too. Yeah, I totally agree, and that there won't we won't need any concordance tables like, oh, a 1250 here is this on this, and that's all really good and really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, because as someone who used to do admissions, the fact is that you kind of rely on what you know about the test and, and are familiar with, and when you start introducing concordance tables and things like that, it's... It's just tougher to parse. Um, so I know there's, I've heard that the digital test will be adaptive. So what can you tell us about what does that mean and, and how does that going to play out in the digital SAT? Yeah, so we're getting now to what is actually changing. And so as I mentioned before, um, the content relatively is staying the same. It's really the experience of the test that's going to change. And there are five big changes that we should talk about. And the first is, um, we talked about scores just a minute ago. Scores are going to come out faster. You'll get your score within days instead of weeks. And so that's that's nice. nice. Really nice. Especially when you're up against those early decision deadlines or application deadlines to know and then be able to submit your scores is a a, a huge boon. The second thing that's going to change, as we talked about, is the technology. Um, you're going to be on paper or moving from paper to computer. Um, and in that also, you can use a calculator on the entire math section now, which a lot of mm-hmm. us, I, as a calculator dependent person, that's a huge boon um, yes. for me. Um, so that's another technology change. The third, it's going to be shorter two hours instead mm. of three hours. So another positive, again, it's an experiential change. Um, the one content change that we didn't talk about that is going to adjust is reading. Um, they're going to, short passages will be shorter. So all, all those those dusty old <laughs> passages right. are kind of gone and there'll be more one-off questions and more vocabulary. But adaptive, the fifth change is the big one. And what that means is that the test will change based on how you are performing as you move through the exam. So a student will start off in reading with one set of questions called a module of mixed difficulty, easy, medium, and hard. And if they do score well, they will get a second module that is of high difficulty. If they don't score as well, their second module will be, will be a lower difficulty level. And that's it. And then the scores um, will be uh, the computer basically through an algorithm uh, hones in on your score based on those your performance on those two modules. So that's what adaptive means for this new test. Got it. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot we could delve into about <laughs> just that piece alone. And in the interest of getting to a few other things, we won't, but I, it might be interesting to have you come back and talk a little bit more about the adaptive process and, you know, all the pitfalls or positives associated with that. But let's move forward on this one. Um, how do you prepare for a digital test like this? You know, it's brand new. Um, do you think the, the prep differs any? 
You know, I think the one thing to remember is exactly what you pointed out before is that for most students going to make this transition, it's not a transition for them at all right? Um, because they've never taken these exams. And so um, the one thing that I would um, say is that still 90% is content review. It's just content, knowing the math, knowing the re- types of reading, all of those things that we just always do for test prep. So that's not really going to change. Um, what does change is the part of test prep where you focus on how you take the test. That's really where it's going to shift. And so there are new strategies for or how you annotate, because you can't annotate with a pencil and pen anymore. Right. On paper, you have to learn how to annotate on a screen or use scrap paper next to you on um, that they give you at the test center. Um, there is, as I said, with the reading content change, there's a few strategy changes there as well. Um, I think a second big thing that's part of switching to a digital test is learning how to use the tools on the screen to your advantage. There are some tools that are there that actually are going to slow you down if you know not to use them. Mm. Um, and then there are other things where um, using the on-screen calculator, there's now a calculator built into the screen, is actually faster than using your own calculator that you're still allowed to bring into the test. So there are tips like that that will, um, as students learn how to navigate the tools, can be helpful. And I think the third thing is just getting used to the platform. And this is the most important when it comes to an adaptive test like this, is um, we have seen studies of students who try to make a transition from paper to computer, not SAT, but all studies. And there's always an initial learning curve where the score drops a little bit as they're getting Mm -hmm. used to the interface. So practicing with a platform. And finally, when it comes to adaptive testing, one of the big things with adaptive testing is not getting yourself too far into your head with anxiety of like, oh goodness, this second module feels too, it's too easy. Did Did I score poorly on the first one? And then you spend energy on something you don't and shouldn't be worrying about. Right. And so getting that sort of coaching mindset, getting that testing mindset right is another element to adaptive testing that's a little bit new for most students. Very quickly, how can you get on this platform and practice on it? Uh, collegeboard.org um, is where the students can do it. They can also access it through Khan Academy, K-H-A-N Academy. Um, this is where the College Board has released four official practice exams. You can do it there. We also have a platform at Arbor Bridge that we're unveiling this month um, for our students. So you can reach out to us at arborbridge.com and we can uh, get you a free test that way. Perfect. Okay, two more quick questions before we wrap. ACT, we haven't really talked about it. Are they going digital as well? No, they are old school all the way. They have said, uh, ACT, you can change all you, or SAT, you can change all you want. We are going to stick with paper. Uh, we are the tried and true exam. Stick with paper. Um, so that is going to be their their line for the next couple of years. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if in a couple of years they revisit that. Yeah. I mean, that would be my guess, too, especially if the College Board rolls this out. It's really successful. Students are like, this is great. I'm only there for two hours on a Saturday. So much easier. There's going to be a lot more pressure on the ACT to kind of match that experience would be my guess. It's certainly something we've seen play out before. Yes. And so at your student, you could do the digital SAT. You could take the paper ACT. Um How do you choose? Any tips on that? Yeah, two, it really boils down to two things. The first is taking a diagnostic of both. This is more important than it's ever been because the first thing it will do is give you a sense of how you score on each test and and its version, but it will also give you a sense of the feel of the exam. And as I mentioned, the real difference between these two tests now is going to be the experience as that SAT moves digitally. So knowing how it feels, knowing if you like it, if you perform well under that feel is key. And then the second thing to focus on is timeline. Um, So if you're one of these rare students who's going to be a junior next year. Um, Mm -hmm. So the class of 2020, uh, class of 2025, um, you're going to be in this category where if you 
you could decide to take a, a digital SAT. You could take a paper. You also might be starting your exams in the the right the spring of next year when digital SAT is just doing it's on its baby legs. It's out for the first time in the U.S. Right. and that can be a shaky place. So I would say in timeline, just the tip that I would give if you're trying to decide between ACT and SAT next spring is try to avoid just generally the first one or two administrations of the digital SAT here in the United States. The reason for that is it will give more time for the College Board to release more practice material for proctors and test sites to get more comfortable with it so that nothing goes wrong on test day. And also it gives us all a little bit more sense of how the scoring is going to work because that's exactly not 100% clear um, yet from the College Board. So just give it a little bit more time. That would be all I would say. Yeah, and, and for those who are tempted to say, oh, I'm going to rush and get it all taken before that March day, date, I would say proceed with caution. Also, I generally encourage my students, you know, not to take the SAT um, too early in their junior year because they may not have everything that they need to do well on it. Um, it's designed for a second semester juniors or a senior. So, you know, and Megan, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong there, but I've always, my take has always been, it's not really designed for you to take it a whole lot earlier than that, or for you to do well on it a whole lot earlier than that. But for some students, they might be perfectly prepared. And if you're showing that you're doing really well on practice versions of the paper test, maybe you just want to take it and see if you can replicate that in the actual test setting. Any thoughts on that approach? I would second that as well. Remember, as I said, that 90% of prep is the content and the skills. And if you don't have those content or skills, you're not ready to take the test, no matter if it's paper or digital. And so it really is about when you are best prepared, when you have the skills under your belt to do your very best, figure that out first, and then adjust around this timeline of just avoiding those two iterations, those first two administrations, the digital exam. Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. This has been super helpful, very insightful. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Beth. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about negotiating and uh, appealing for more aid. And you definitely don't want to miss that. So don't go away. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more.
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to dive right into talking about negotiating and appealing for more aid. And joining me for this conversation is my colleague, Alex Bickford, who works here at College Coach and is a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I feel like you and I... This is definitely an evergreen segment. It is. Um, and I feel like you and I have actually done this segment before. So, um, but it's evergreen because it is ever present and ever important for families, especially at this time of year, um, as the decisions start coming in and, and students start getting their financial aid and merit aid packages. Um, we want them to be aware of these opportunities. So, why don't we start with talking? I, I have been introducing the segment or teasing the segment throughout um, and talking about appealing and negotiating for more aid. There is a difference between these two pieces, appealing versus negotiating. So can you walk us through that difference? Sure. I, I start out by saying almost everybody should negotiate financial aid, but not everybody's going to appeal financial aid. Okay. So when you're appealing financial aid, it's really saying my financial circumstances have drastically changed. There's some unusual things that are going on. And I need to convey that to the Office of Financial Aid at the college uh, in order to see if I qualify or if my student qualifies for more need-based financial assistance, whether that's institutional grants or federal grants or work-study programs, things of that nature. So there are some families whose incomes may be just high enough, even with the change of financial circumstances, that that might not matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are a lot of families who just even a small change in their circumstance, a reduction of income or a job loss, or I had a big bonus last year that I'm not getting this year, or whatever the case may be, uh, might prove that uh, impacts aid significantly. Right. So... That's need-based financial aid is kind of the appeal process. Got it. Okay. And and just to kind of dig into that even a little bit more, we are really talking about exactly what you just said. This is need-based aid. And the reason that you would, you know, if nothing has changed, no appeal is necessary, right? right? Um, if, if your job remains the same, you no one's experienced a loss, you, you know, none of those things that you just mentioned, like basically what you entered into the FAFSA is really no different minus maybe a cost of living merit sure. increase, yep. right, that you got at work, but basically nothing significant has changed. Then the idea that you could appeal is, it's probably, there really isn't grounds for appeal. Yeah, in, that's usually true. Usually mm -hmm. that's 100% true. Um, in, unless you have unusual expenses too. That's, so that's the other piece of this. Like if you're caring for elderly parents or sending money to elderly parents, or you've got uh, maybe student loan debt of your own, or you have uh, kids in private K through 12 school, those might be some other reasons. But basically what, what it shows up on paper is not truly uh, showing my full financial picture. And a lot can change in two years, you know, certainly. Right financial data from two years ago. So a lot can change in that period of time. So it's either 
your income has had a big adjustment uh, or your expenses are not uh, are different than what a typical family may have. Oh, got it. Than what they were. I'm thinking of a third situation, or um, which is you filled out the calculator. You did the calculator in advance, right, of applying, and it showed you an expected family contribution that you were like, okay. And then the financial aid package comes back, Great and point. it's wildly different. Is that another situation where you might appeal? Absolutely. That would be a situation where you'd want them to at least review what's going on. It may not be a true appeal. And so there's a fourth kind of situation that's not a true appeal, but we'll talk about it. But so that situation, exactly, and especially for parents who are thinking about early action, early decision, early decision, especially when yes. they're finding, I always have families doing those net price calculators beforehand and making sure they're doing it with really good data. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if, if your data is off, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, you right. have really accurate data in there. And if you do, and as you said, Beth, the numbers come up back very, very different, that would be grounds for either them letting that, you out of early decision or for them to at least review what happened and why things are different. And it may right. be that their calculator justice is not up to snuff. That might be something happened internally, their policies have changed, but either way, you'd be able to have that reviewed. And then the other scenario would be, what if you have two competing colleges where you didn't get merit aid at either one? This is really a need-based scenario, uh, but one gave you more need-based financial aid, making their costs less than another. So that's really not negotiation because it's not merit aid. So admissions probably really isn't involved there. Mm-hmm. Different need-based financial aid policies at each school And so sometimes schools would be willing to kind of look at that adjustment, specifically as you get to the more selective schools. Right. And and most schools will have who they consider peer institutions that they don't want to lose students to, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, so for example, if you're holding a financial aid officer from Dartmouth and you're holding one from the University of Alabama, unfortunately... Right. For you, Dartmouth doesn't, I wouldn't say they don't care about the University of Alabama, but they don't consider them a peer institution and they're right. not going to feel any pressure at all to come to provide a package that matches what Alabama matched. However, if Brown gave you a package that is better in some way, maybe it was more aid or more grant money or whatever, they might consider it. It's not a definite, right? But they might consider it. So, so I don't know if you've been reading my notes out there, but I had a family that exact scenario two years ago Stop. That we were working with that had brand had provided not huge difference but a slightly better package uh, than Dartmouth did and and we did that exact scenario and Dartmouth mm-hmm. uh, aid matched kind of uh, policy matched what Brown was doing and the family had about four thousand dollars more a year so nice. it was not the end of the world it was not like you know, twenty thousand thirty thousand dollar difference because these institutions try to be very similar to each other but they were slightly off and things changed. So that was really good. Yeah. So that is that is interesting. Okay. So that's appeal. Um, what about negotiate? You made the distinction yeah. um, a, a few minutes ago that when you're negotiating, that's really about merit aid. So talk to us a little bit about negotiating and merit aid just in general. Right. So, and there's some crossover, you know, the scenario we just talked about policy differences that, mm-hmm. that can be sort of in between. It's not really an appeal. It's not really a negotiation. But negotiation typically, uh, we consider it to be this school has offered me merit. This school has offered me more merit. 
Uh, right. I'm trying to get that school, school A, to come to where school B is. Right. And so because, yeah. right, because it, theoretically, right, you love school B. School A is giving you more merit money. School sure. B would be your first choice. But if only they gave you as much merit money as school A did, right? That's a great example, I think, of. A- a- absolutely. And, and, you know, what you just said uh, kind, kind of a minute ago, peer institutions is really, really key here. Right. Uh, in, 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 in so schools that offer merit, uh, if you're talking about, let's just think about uh, NYU, a mm-hmm. pretty selective school offers merit, but probably only to their very, very top applicants. And they get something from, and I don't want to pick, pick on Alabama, but from Alabama. Right. Who has great merit policies. Right. Maybe that's why right. they're coming to mind. Yes, we're not exactly. picking on them. They they're just great. They merit opportunities. Yes. Sure. Uh, and so they'd say, well, geez, you know, that's great for you if you can't afford us, go to Alabama. It's sort of going to be their response now. If they had uh, a peer institution come back that has offered a really strong, let's just say it was uh, Northeastern, uh, offered a really strong offer, Mm -hmm. uh, and while you might be willing to look at that and consider that. Right, right. So again, it's peer institutions. Okay, so we've we've talked through the difference between negotiating and appealing. how do you go about, let's start with appealing. How do you go about appealing a financial aid decision package? Sure. So this is something that is going to be a little bit different from school to school, but it's important that it needs to be done from school to school. Uh, you can't put anything in information on the FAFSA form. That is an input only form. You can't outline special circumstances. The CSS profile form does allow you to have a special circumstance section, but for the most part, that is sort of a intro to I'm going to be filing right. a financial aid appeal. This is not my appeal. Got so it. Most schools will have on their websites, it's called a professional judgment form or special circumstance form, financial aid appeal form. Uh, and you'll need to fill that out, provide the backup documentation. And I really try to get an appointment with my student's uh, financial aid counselor just to kind of talk through, am I doing this right? Am I, are, are, is everything lining up? Do you understand my story? Because uh, right. the story can be really, really important in this circumstance. Uh, and having a really good, positive connection with that person uh, is going to go a long way because most oftentimes that person is your advocate, either in front of the director of financial aid who might be making the decisions, the vice president who might be making the decisions, or committee who might be making the decision. So you want a great connection with that. Right. right. Advocate, not antagonist, right? Yes. This is not your enemy. And if right. you come at the financial aid office as if they are your enemies, Absolutely. that is literally the worst thing you can do. Right. If everything, if you go through everything and you're at the end and you're saying, okay, my appeal wasn't granted and I'm frustrated and I, I want to go one more time at this, you might ask to go a level above Still, once again, you need to be uh, right. very professional and really try to make that director, whoever it, that is, is the next level uh, to be in your court. Uh, but you don't want to lose uh, lose that person who is going to be your best chance of success. Right. I love that. I think that's really helpful. Okay. So what about negotiating? How do you go about doing that piece when you're negotiating more merit aid? So most oftentimes, not always, but most oftentimes that's going to be done through the Office of Admissions. Some schools, it might be the Office of Financial Aid. So this is a circumstance where I might actually uh, contact both. I might write a letter to both, especially if you do have 
some need-based financial aid and some merit aid. I think actually addressing, and I say letter, you know, an email uh, to both if you have an admissions counselor, that would be ideal. If you have a connection in the office of admissions, that would be the ideal. And the office of financial aid and sort of letting them know where you're at. So I start with first, the student needs to let them know. Uh, and this could be the parent, but I like kind of dual written letters. This is coming from the student and the parent. So this, letting the, the school know, I love your school. This right. is my top choice. I want to be here. Essentially letting them know, if we can work out this financial arrangement, we're going to close the deal. This is done. Right. Uh, and then if there's any new information, so I applied back in November, maybe. Is there an award that I've won? Have my grades improved? Do I have a better test score? Has anything changed from me from an academic standpoint? Would my application for admissions be different today if I were to apply? So just new information. You don't have to reiterate you're old. Right. And then comparing, putting, putting the offers on the table, two or three, if you have them competing offers is amazing. So maybe I've got this school that gave me a really great merit offer. Maybe I've got this in-state public school that's really kind of similar selectivity as you, and they're much less expensive. Here are my other options, and we're hoping to close the gap. Got it. So we are getting, we have about two more minutes. So I know we want to get to a few other things because I could talk about that piece of it forever. My own personal experience with that, which was successful. Um, so thank you for the tips to Alex and team. Um, what about, is there any downside to negotiating? I think my impression is that one of the reasons people don't even try it is because they're afraid. So what's your take? Any downside to this? Normally, no. So okay. uh, I would say that it, you know, in the case that a student's been accepted early decision, uh, that would be one of those areas that I don't really love to go near. Mm -hmm. uh, you've kind of should have done your research. You should have known what the costs were, had a good idea what the costs were going to be. And you're not supposed to really have competing offers at that time. So No, for sure. You can't. Right. That would be bad, actually. So that would be a case that I don't like to go near it. Uh, and I had somebody ask me early decision two the other day. Mm -hmm. Donna was accepted. And so she did have other offers that had sure. come in and asked about the scenario. And I still was like, maybe you can go and talk to them. But I wouldn't. this would not be something I'm pushing hard on. You right. applied early decision two because you wanted her to get in. She got in. That's it. Right. Uh, right. So, but otherwise, you know, you're never going to have the offer that you already have withdrawn. They're not going to cancel your admissions offer. So I'd say uh, in most cases, no harm, no foul. Okay. Very quickly. Um, are there, do all colleges have appeal conversations, negotiating conversations? They'll all have appeal conversations for sure um, because of financial changes of circumstance. Absolutely. They'll have those negotiations. Some just know. Uh, and then there are some that will say no and do, and then there are some that will very actively participate. Right. Got it. Okay. So, and really the only way to know is just to, to try. Right. Absolutely. That's, and that's the reality of it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate you being here today. Um, thank you to Megan. Next week, Ian is here. He's hosting. Um, we're dedicating the show next week to students with physical or learning differences. And we're going to be talking about those from both an admissions and a financial um, perspective. Um, so don't go away. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.